I want you to close your eyes for a minute. I want you to imagine God. I want you to imagine Jesus standing right in front of you. That's what a April 2020 New York Times Magazine article invited its readers to do. The author, Eric Kopech, who's the editor of the magazine, asked the readers, is the person standing in front of you, is it a man kneeling in the garden in Gethsemane? Is it a Navajo man sitting at the Last Supper with his disciples? Is it a man being dragged on a cross towards Golgotha in Nigeria? Or is the figure in front of you of a crucified woman? Close your eyes. Imagine Christ in front of you. Is it a white bearded man sitting on a throne, a caricature from The Simpsons? Is the Jesus in front of you a child stuck in the middle of war zone for no reason other than the luck of geography? Is it a woman? Is the Christ standing in front of you a woman who's being ridiculed for demanding peace among the nations? Is the person in front of you a person who was lynched in the American South? Open your eyes. The ways in which we imagine Christ vary depending on what's happening in our lives and what's happening around the world. I want you to imagine something else now. At the beginning of the movie, Talladega Nights, the ballad of Ricky Bobby, Ricky Bobby, who is a NASCAR superstar, fictional, is seated at the head of his dining room table. He's gathered there with his wife, his two sons, Walker and Texas Ranger, his father-in-law, and his best friend in the whole wide world, Cal Naughton Jr. And like many of you, Ricky, before they enjoy their meal, says a blessing. It goes a little something like this. Dear Lord, baby Jesus, or as our brothers in the South call you, Jesus, we thank you so much for this bountiful harvest of Domino's, KFC, and the always delicious Taco Bell. Dear Lord Baby Jesus, we thank you for my wife's father, Chip. We hope that you can use his, your Baby Jesus powers to heal him in his horrible leg. At that point in the prayer, Ricky's wife, her name is Carly, she interrupts. and She goes, you know, sweetie. Jesus did grow up. You don't always have to call him baby. It's a bit odd and off-putting to pray to a baby. Well, Ricky responds, well, look, I like the Christmas Jesus the best when I'm saying grace. When you say grace, you can pray it to grown-up Jesus or teenage Jesus or bearded Jesus or whoever you want. And then Ricky, he continues, dear eight pounds, six ounce baby Jesus, don't even know a word yet. Just a little infant, so cuddly, still omnipotent. Before long, Cal Naughton Jr., Ricky's best friend, he's the one in the Old Spice uniform, he says this. Buckle up. I like to picture Jesus in a tuxedo t-shirt because it says I want to be formal, but I'm here to party. And I like my Jesus to party because I like to party. 
I like to think of Jesus with giant eagle's wings. And he's singing lead vocals for Leonard Skinner with an angel band. And I'm in the front row. Eight pounds, six ounce, newborn baby Jesus with his little baby Einstein toys wearing golden fleece diapers. It's the Christmas Jesus. Maybe it's Jesus wearing a tuxedo t-shirt because you know Jesus likes to be formal, but he's always up for a party. Maybe it's Jesus singing lead vocals in a southern rock band and you're in the front row. Maybe it's grown-up Jesus or beardless teenage Jesus. Acclaimed fictional race car drivers are not the only ones with a preferred version of Jesus. Artists and theologians since the beginning of the church have used cultural imagery to help identify Christ within time and in the church. Joan Taylor, who is a professor of Christianity and Judaism at King's College, writes, Early Christian artists appropriated images of long-haired pagan gods like Zeus to symbolize the power of Christ. The artists, she added, were referring to other gods the people of that era would know. The ways in which we imagine Christ is as unique as the saints of the church, past, present, and future. Jesus' parable of the talents on first glance depicts a tough and harsh master. Jesus says that there was a rich man who was preparing for a journey, but before he, had, he could leave, he had to distribute sums of money to his servants. This distribution was not a gift. The servants weren't going to keep this money for themselves. Instead, the rich man was entrusting various amounts of money to his servants to watch over while he, the rich man, was gone. He distributed five talents, two talents, and one talent. The talent is the largest currency in the ancient Near East. We're talking 60 to 75 pounds of silver. That's what one talent equaled. 16 years' worth of wages. So, we could, so like I told the kids, we could read this parable as a rich man was preparing for a trip, and he distributed 300 pounds, 120 pounds, and 60 pounds of silver to three of his servants before he left town on a business trip. This man couldn't obviously take all of that with him. Imagine trying to check nearly 600 pounds of silver at the Southwest ticket counter this coming week when you're traveling. Try jamming that into the overhead bin. The first two servants, they go out. They wheel and deal with the rich man's money. They invest in Bitcoin and, and cryptocurrency before the markets begin to collapse, and they see a great return on their hard work. The third servant, though, he takes the 60 pounds of silver. He goes way outside of the beltway, out towards Leesburg, Percival. He finds a plot of land, and he buries the silver. Safe and sound. Underground, he says, as he throws the last bit of dirt over top of the silver. Putting the rich man's talent underground is the equivalent of holding on to a friend's necklace or some cash while they run to go to the bathroom or, or to do something and then come back. They're expecting you to hand it back to them. That's what the, rich, the third servant was prepared to do. 
prepared to hand it back. We would think that the third servant acted prudently. He was safe. So the rich man returns, and he wants to know what has happened with his money. So he calls all of his servants to him. The first two servants report that they doubled what was given to them. And the rich man invites them to come and join the joy of their master. The third servant approaches the rich man and he says, Rich man, your money is safe and sound underground. It's out past Percival. I'm going to go get it for you and I'll bring it back. Don't worry. None of the money was wasted. I knew that you were tough and that you were harsh, so I didn't waste any of it. I didn't invest in any volatile markets. I didn't lose any money in online gambling. I'm going to go dig it up for you and bring it back. Then the rich man lashes out. Tough and harsh? I'll show you tough and harsh, the rich man shouts. You could have at least purchased a CD at an insured bank. If you had done that, I would have at least received 5.75% in increase because of in current interest rates. Take this worthless servant. Cast him out into the darkness. And somehow, Jesus tells us that the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, is wrapped up in this mess. At first glance, we really do not like this parable. At first glance, I know, I rolled my eyes and said, I picked the wrong Sunday to take off last week. <laughs> Should have waited a week. The little guy gets clobbered. The rich get rich. And the poor, they get poor. We're uneasy with this parable. With the little guy clutching on to his one talent and then being thrown into the outer darkness because he declared fear of his master. I knew you were tough and harsh, so I hid your talent to protect it. The third servant closed his eyes and imagined that his master, and the image of his master in his mind makes Stephen King's The Shining look like a children's book. The harshness of the rich man's response to the servant is not the point of this parable. This parable is not an X plus Y plus Z equals salvation in your entrance into the kingdom of heaven. After all, Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is like. This is a story about God's grace. The first two servants acted with great faith, believing that if they did not increase the servants, their rich, the rich man's wealth, or worse, they lost all of it, that they would be received with grace and invited into the joy of the master. They imagined God being full of grace and full of joy, and so they acted likewise. While the third servant closed his eyes and was filled with images of Jack. The late Robert Capon, he was an Episcopal priest, he writes that the sheer needlessness of fear the utter non-necessity of ever having to dread God is at the point of this parable. The servant with his little shovel and his mousy apprehension that God is as small as himself is, quote, such a nerd. He is just one more of the pitiful turkeys that Jesus parades through his parables to shock us. If possible, 
into realizing the stupidity of unfaith. Whether we imagine Jesus wearing golden fleece diapers, a tuxedo t-shirt, maybe sandals and a tie-dye shirt because we like our Jesus to be a hippie Jesus. Maybe Jesus is a harsh and tough dictator. Or a God who is going to seek revenge upon return. If we imagine God in any one of those ways, that's the God we're going to get. If we imagine Jesus, all six pounds, eight ounces, with his baby Einstein and his golden fleece diapers, if that's how we expect Jesus to return, then when Christ returns in final victory, just like our communion liturgy states, we're going to miss Christ's return. And in the same way, if we expect Jesus to return full of wrath and judgment to be poured out upon our enemies or those whom we disagree with, we're going to be sorely disappointed because that wrath that we want for other people is going to come to us. We spend countless hours, countless hours creating God in the image of our fears. All the while, Capon writes, God is beating us over the head with the balloon of grace and the styrofoam baseball bat of vindictive judgment. God wants nothing more than to change you from the inside out. God is not out to hurt anyone. There are no lengths to which God will go to prove that the only boundaries between God and us are the fear-filled and golden fleece restrictions that we place on the joy of the Lord. The good news is this. Even when we think that we want a vindictive God for ourselves, for ourselves or for others. Even when we think that we want a baby in fleece diapers because we, because we prefer the Christmas Jesus, we still have Christ. We still have Christ who went into the outer darkness himself on our behalves. We still have Christ who on the third day rose and walked out of the empty tomb. We have Christ who ascended and is, is seated at the right hand of God the Father and who promises to come and to right all of the wrongs across creation. The one who took the wickedness and vindictive wrath of the world upon himself and instead of pouring that out upon us as revenge invites us to experience the joy of God's amazing grace. I offer this to you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.